have a seat if you would, and if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Acts chapter 4, it'll be on the screen if you don't have a Bible, if you're not familiar with Acts, it's the fifth book in the New Testament. Uh, we started a series last week called More Than a Building, talking about the church, and uh, we want to start uh, w- w- with this, um, I don't know, sometimes a couple, a couple of weeks ago or so, um, <coughs> Jacob Wilkie, our uh, student minister, sent uh, me and Shane Phillips, this, uh, like, I guess, an article, basically. And uh, it, the article starts out, and it says this. Elementary school children in Moline, Illinois, have been invited this week to an after-school Satan club with five different meeting dates planned for early this year, starting Thursday, January the 13th according to flyers placed in the school's lobby and shared on social media. Some parents are angry about their children's exposure to information about the club, apparently prompting the superintendent of schools uh, to weigh in. And basically what the uh, superintendent of schools weighed in with was, you know, this isn't a school thing. We uh, rent out school facilities, uh, you know, to clubs and groups and organizations. And uh, that basically once we do that and we let other religious groups use it, that, uh, you know, we can't say no to this group because it's a Satan club. And, uh, you know, legally I think that's correct. It's not the uh, government's job to decide, uh, you know, what's religious truth, what's spiritual truth. Uh, You know, hopefully as Americans we believe in freedom of religion and freedom of speech and that kind of thing. And so, you know, she's saying there kind of has to be a level playing field. Now, you know, some, some parents like the what I just read have gotten up in the air about it. But, you know, people around the, the country have gotten up in the air about it. Also because people around the country get up in the air about everything, any and everything right now, right? Uh, I, I can say the sun's shining and somebody's going to get ticked off uh, about that because we just seem to be an angry bunch uh, these days. But, um, you know, it, it just seems like to me that when things come up now, that most things become like a left, right, Democrat, Republican, political, conservative uh, kind of issue and, and, and that kind of thing. And uh, I, I think Christians are guilty of that, too, are, are, are guilty of, uh, you know, kind of sometimes looking at the externals of things, uh, the, you know, the fruit of things, not the real issue of, of, of things. And I think maybe that could be the case with something like this. You know, people get all up in the air about, oh, we're in such a mess and, uh, you know, where our country's going to hell. Can you believe there's an after-school Satan club and, and, and that kind of thing? But this is really what stuck out to me in the article, this sentence. The Satanic Temple says on its website that it operates the clubs that, quote, select public schools where good news clubs also operate. And a good news club is a Christian club. It's like there's a uh, basically kind of like a, a child evangelism organization that, you know, will come in and do these clubs after school. And so basically what they're saying is, is we're starting these clubs where these kind of Christian clubs are. And, and, and to me, when you start seeing this in that light, you're getting more towards the heart of the issue. And the heart of the issue here is a battle between light and darkness. 
And, you know, the Bible tells us in Ephesians 6.12 that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness in uh, heavenly places. That uh, whatever's going on around us, that behind that, that there, there's a spiritual realm and there is an enemy and there's a fight going on. There's a battle going on for the souls of men and women and boys and girls. And, you know, when we see things around us, really people's eternal souls are what's at stake. And so, you know, if, if this is true, then, um, you know, you have an enemy that's fighting to destroy your marriage. You have an enemy that's fighting to destroy your family. You have an enemy that wants to steal, kill, and destroy uh, your, your children. We have an enemy that wants to destroy our society. We have an enemy that wants to destroy uh, our, our church. And again, when we read things in the media, when we read about uh, the family breakdown and, and, and addiction issues, and when we look at things going on in the world like Russia possibly invading Ukraine, even when we think about COVID and all the responses to that and all the different p opinions and different argu arguments over that, what we need to see is there is a spiritual reality behind this, that we have a sovereign God who is ultimately in control of all things, who is uh, working all things together according to his divine eternal plan and decrees, but there's an enemy who's opposing him, there's a battle, and we're in the middle of that battle, even if we don't see it. But I think the Lord wants us to begin to look more with spiritual eyes than just seeing what's going on externally around us. Let me take this to another level. So, this article goes on to say that the club's flyer says children are offered science projects, puzzles, games, arts and crafts projects, and nature activities. And uh, the, the, the website of this satanic temple group uh, says that its mission is to, quote, encourage benevolence and empathy, reject tyrannical authority, advocate practical common sense, oppose injustice, and undertake noble pursuits. And if you read their beliefs, it actually is saying pretty much the same thing that the Humanist Manifesto does. In fact, it goes on in an FAQ on their website, do you worship Satan? And the answer that they give is no, nor do we believe in the existence of Satan or the supernatural. So, I, you know, I, and I don't know if that's a front and they really are worshiping Satan or if it's really this is more of like a, you know, humanist club, uh, you know, reason club or, you know, if it's just, uh, you know, trying to push back against Christianity in some way. But, again... You know, people got all up in the air about, oh, there's a Satan club in the school. Or whatnot. Here's the real issue. So, May of 19, er, 1991, I, I think, I know it was May because I was taking a May term class at, at Carson Newman, and by a process of elimination, I think it had to be 1991. Um, Robin and I got married in 1990. She was at work. She had already graduated. I'm getting ready to go to school. You know, when you have like one of these two, three-week classes, that they last most of the day. And uh, I, I get a call from a guidance counselor at one of the middle schools in Morristown. And um, 
he or she proceeds to tell me that they have a student there, I think he was in eighth grade, who uh, went to our church, and, and, and Robert and I did youth ministry at this church at that time, who had basically been uh, dabbling in Satanism, and they didn't really know what to do with him, and so they were calling me, which I'm thinking, if you didn't want somebody who knows what to do with this, you got the wrong number. <laughs> I'm a 20-year-old college student. I mean, what, what do I know about what to do with this? But I think apparently our pastor was unavailable, and so uh, I guess I'm the available substitute at that moment. And so uh, I, I go up there, and, and really, I don't know what to do. All I needed to do was to kind of talk to him, listen to him, share the gospel with him. So in a guidance counselor's office in a public school, uh, he, we got down on our knees at, in a couch in that office, and he prayed to receive Christ. Uh, as his savior and we went back to his uh, house and uh, we burned stuff like Ouija boards and stuff that he had cut pentagrams in and some of the uh, things he had drawn and, and, and that kind of thing for him to basically renounce his involvement in that. And wherever this club is coming from or whatever other club or organization or whatever that you want to name, that, I think, illustrates what's really at stake. That's the issue. People's souls. And if we're in this battle, Ephesians chapter 6 tells us you know, the armor to put on to fight this battle because I think one of the things we as the church are going to have to decide is are we going to fight spiritual battles with spiritual weapons or are we going to fight with what the Bible calls carnal weapons, fleshly uh, weapons. But the Bible says in Ephesians 6.17 to take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints and for me that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. If we're going to fight this battle in the words of an old Petra song we're going to have to get down on our knees and fight like a man. And, but the reality is it is easy in the life of a church, to neglect prayer in favor of everything else. Because prayer is one of the hardest things that we do. I mean, really. I mean, if, if, if prayer, you know, in a sense, if you're, if you're battling an unseen enemy, or I think prayer is challenging to us because, honestly, you know, it's, it's not hard to pray in the sense of, I mean, if you have faith in God, like, God help me, God meet my needs. But the problem is, a lot of times when we pray, what we want to talk about and what God wants to talk about are two different things. We're wanting to talk about, God, I want you to do this for me. And God's wanting to talk about, I want you to surrender to me. That's why prayer is hard, if we're honest about it. But, you know, Jesus said in the model prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a prayer of surrender. But the Bible says this, Luke 19, 45, um, says that Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, It is written, My house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. So Jesus himself said that his house is to be a house of prayer. And so 
as, as we go into week two of this series, More Than a Building, and talking about the church, this is the big idea that I want you to get from this today. As we, as we look in, in just a second, we're getting the book of Acts. This is the conviction that I want us to take away and, and, and live out as a church. It's that the church is not a physical building, but it's a spiritual house of prayer. It's not a physical building, but it's a spiritual house of prayer. Let's look in Acts chapter 2, kind of, you know, the, our foundational passage. And then I want to walk us through a passage in Acts chapter 4 uh, where we see the early church praying uh, together. But Acts chapter 2, what we looked at last week, says those who gladly received his word. In other words, those who responded to the message about Jesus that, that P- Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. Those who gladly received his word were baptized. They publicly confessed their faith in Christ. That day about 3,000 souls were added to them. But then, so, you know, this is the church. Started with 120 praying in an upper room. Now you got over 3,000 people that have publicly professed faith in, in, in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Then what are they doing? Well, next verse, it says, They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. This is what they were doing. Now, let's kind of fast forward ahead then. So you come to Acts chapter 3, and Peter and John, two of the apostles, were going to the temple to pray at one of the hours of prayer. There were three hours of prayer uh, that, that Jews observed. Uh, this would have been the afternoon prayer, which would have been about prayer time, which would have been at 3 o'clock. And as they're walking to the temple, they encounter a, a, a man who was crippled and who was basically uh, begging. He was, you know, asking for financial help. And so uh, Peter said, well, silver and gold we don't have, but in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. And, and, and God healed him. And, and, you know, and I believe I've seen it happen. God does miracles today. He heals people. He does supernatural things. Now, it's not the same as it was then. I mean, the apostles had a special empowering from uh, God. It's not the same thing today, but Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God can do whatever he chooses to do, and God sometimes does uh, miracles, but he did a miracle then. And so this man, you know, he rises up, he's walking, he's jumping, he's shouting, he's excited. The people are like kind of freaking out. They're just amazed at what they've seen. And so what did Peter do? Peter used this as an occasion, as an opportunity to preach the gospel. He told them uh, about Jesus and how Jesus had died and Jesus had been uh, risen from the dead. I mean, the message that they always preached. And he told them in Acts chapter uh, 3, verse 19, to repent and be converted that your sins uh, may be blotted out and times of refreshing would come from the Lord. And you see that many of them responded to that gospel message and became Christians. But when you come to Acts chapter 4, what you find is that uh, the, the Jewish religious leaders were upset at this. You know, they had rejected Jesus as the Messiah, but it, it says, I don't remember if it's the end of chapter 3 or beginning of chapter 4, now that their group, this group of Christians had come to about 5,000 men. So whatever the total is when you add in women and children, I mean, this message, and this is amazing because this is happening uh, where Jesus had been uh, crucified just a few weeks before, uh, this message is taking hold. People are becoming Christians right and left, and they're upset about it. They begin to push back, and they, they bring them in, and they begin to question them, and they begin to threaten them, and they're basically telling them you can't preach uh, Jesus anymore. 
and uh, like I said, they're threatening them, but they, there's not a whole lot they can do because people had seen this miracle. And so that's the context, the situation. And so as we pick up in, in verse 23 and, and, and read what it says here, it starts, it says, and being let go. So when, when they, after they threatened them and everything, they let them go. And then it says, they went to their own companions and reported all the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So when they, you know, the, the church, this group of Christians, I don't know how many of them were, were, were there, but it says when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, and here they're quoting from the second psalm, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and, and, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. So we, we see here in, in these verses one of several examples of powerful corporate prayer. And by corporate prayer, we mean the, you know, the church praying together in the book of Acts. So, you know, anybody can pray. Really, prayer is going to be answered when Christians pray, when people who have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ and can call on Him as their Father. So we're to pray individually. You know, Paul said, pray without ceasing. We can talk to God any time. But there's a, there are time and places for the church to gather together to pray. In fact, you know, Paul instructed us as men, and I think sometimes, if, if we're honest about it, women do better with prayer than men do. But, but Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 2, I desire that the men pray, uh, you know, everywhere. Uh, meaning everywhere, you know, Christians assemble with you know, holy hands, lift up, those kind of things. So we're called to, to pray. And so th there's, there's some lessons that I think we learn uh, from about corporate prayer in these verses. And, and, and I want to give you four lessons from this. First of all, I want us to see some conditions for powerful corporate prayer. And, and the first one that I want us to notice is that corporate prayer is to be first priority and not last resort. It's to be first priority and not last resort. In other words, they didn't try everything else, and then they prayed. It says, being let go, they went back to their companions. They reported what it said, and then they raised their voice to God together. In other words, they didn't uh, try to seek some kind of legal remedy. They, they didn't appeal uh, to uh, the Senate or to the Sanhedrin, or you know, they didn't file a, start a petition uh, they didn't bring the ACLU or the ACLJ into this. They didn't talk to people, they talked to God. And listen, 
you know, there, you see examples in the book of Acts where Paul asserts his rights as a Roman citizen. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, with us asserting our rights as citizens sometimes. I'm just saying, do we believe that our help comes from the Lord or our help comes from people? Do we try everything else and then we pray or is prayer first priority? You know, when you read the book of Acts, the church was birthed in a prayer meeting. Remember, Jesus told them to wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Holy Spirit to come. And, and, and so they were together in an upper room. And it says in Acts 1.14 that these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. You see a, another example in, in Acts chapter 12 where Herod had James killed, one of their, their pastors, one of their leaders. And he had Peter in prison. What was their response? Well, the Bible says in Acts chapter 12 that constant prayer was being made for Peter by the church. But, but here's the thing about it, and this ought to encourage us. God supernaturally heard and answered their prayers, and, and Peter, in a supernatural way, was released from prison, and an angel led him to the house where these people were praying. And so, like, he knocks on the door or whatever, and, and a girl comes and answers the door, but she's like so shocked and amazed and excited at the sight of Peter that Peter, who's like basically a fugitive at this point, she leaves him standing at the door. She doesn't let him in, and she runs inside and tells everybody, hey, Peter's here. But the people who were praying for Peter's release did not believe her when she ran in there and said, Peter's at the door. So I think that ought to encourage us in a couple of ways. One, when we're weak in our faith when we pray, we're not alone. And, and, and two, answered prayers are dependent ultimately on the will of God and not the amount of our faith. You know, sometimes people talk about, you know, prayer is powerful. Prayer is not powerful. God's powerful. Prayer just gets us connected with God. So there's a sense in which prayer can do anything that God can and chooses to do. But, you know, our faith is not in prayer. Our faith is in God. That's why, you know, people who don't even believe anything, sometimes in the right situation, like somebody, you know, somebody died or somebody about to have surgery or something, there's like thoughts and prayers with you. But it's like, who are you praying to? You know, is it just a thought bubble in the sky? I mean, answered prayer is not ultimately dependent upon us. It's dependent upon God and our access to Him through Jesus Christ. Second, corporate prayer is necessitated by ministering in a way that requires divine intervention. Corporate prayer is necessitated by ministering in a way that requires divine intervention. Here's what I mean by this, because it may not be obvious just at face value. Basically, if, if we're not doing anything, we probably don't need to pray a whole lot. If we're not doing anything but showing up at church occasionally, well, we probably don't need to call on the power of God a whole lot. But if we're uh, seeking to obey Scripture and live on mission and do something that is beyond us, we're probably going to be prompted to pray. Does that make sense? It's like, uh, try preaching a sermon. It'll do wonders for your prayer life. 
I mean, sometimes this may not even make any sense, but sometimes in my mind while I'm talking, I'm in a sense, in my mind praying, God, like, Holy Spirit, take this and, and, and use it. Speak to people through your word. God, help me. And that's not even how much I, you know, I pray beforehand. But, it, you know, it, it's like you start sharing the gospel with somebody, you're probably going to pray. You start trying to help somebody in need, you're probably going to be motivated to pray. You, you, stop, uh, you start uh, like, uh, trying to help somebody, like a, somebody's away from the Lord, you start you know, confronting them in their sin, you're probably going to pray. If you're trying to counsel or encourage somebody, you're probably going to pray. Just occupying a chair in a church building, eh, not a whole lot of motivation there. You can probably make it here on your own. Um, you know, you, you want to pray, go on a mission trip. That'll get you to praying. Or like, like for me, you know, I've been to Honduras 40 times. I mean, I definitely pray before I go to Honduras. But I mean, I feel, I don't like being away from my family that long, long but I feel relatively comfortable in Honduras. I mean, if we're real about it, I mean, based on what they can give, they treat me like royalty there. I mean, I'm more popular in Honduras than I am in the United States. So, uh, I mean, uh, you know, it, it's not like a humongous sacrifice for me to go to Honduras. But going to Uganda next month, that's probably for me to pray. Never been there before. Don't know exactly what this is going to be like. Uh, you know, six legs of flights during uh, a pandemic, COVID tests both ways, you know. I'd really not, I'd rather not get stuck in quarantine in, in Uganda. That'll prompt you to pray. See, he, here's the thing. The less we're in our comfort zone, the more we tend to pray. The more we're out, the more... Uh, we're in our comfort zone, the less we feel the need to pray. But let's be real. As most of us middle-class Americans, aren't a lot of our prayers, if we're honest about it, is about, are about God keeping us comfortable in our comfort zone? Like God meet our needs, take care of us, protect us, give us what we want. Could it possibly be that a lot of the mess that we see in the world right now is God getting the church out of her comfort zone? I mean, how, how are these comfort zone prayers really working out for us? And, and again, for the church, you know, if we're just kind of showing up and doing our churchy thing, I don't know if there's a lot of motivation to pray. I mean, we may pray for each other. We may pray for somebody to get better. But I mean, you know, how much faith are we really praying with? I think a lot of churches' prayer ministry is praying for an incremental improvement of the bunion on Aunt Matilda's big toe to get better. I mean, what are we really praying for? What do we want to see God do? And, and listen, the thing is, if we really believe, Ephesians 6.12, that there's an unseen enemy and there's a life and death, eternal life and death struggle for the souls of men, women, boys, and girls. Shouldn't that prompt us to pray? Shouldn't that prompt us to pray differently? Third um, condition for a powerful corporate prayer, and I'm just going to touch on this, and we'll talk about it more in a couple weeks, is corporate prayer is effective when the church is united. It says they were praying in one accord. You want to kill your personal prayer life? Be harboring bitterness and unforgiveness towards somebody biblically. You want to kill the moving of the Spirit in a church? Have people at odds with one another. 
you know, maybe before you pray, you need to go make something right with somebody. You need to forgive somebody. Ask somebody's uh, forgiveness. Corporate prayer is effective when the church is united. So those are some conditions for powerful corporate prayer. But the second kind of lesson I want us to see here are some convictions behind powerful corporate prayer. And, and there's three convictions that they express as they prayed that we, as God's people today, need to uh, adopt in our own lives because they're biblical. Number one, God sovereignly, and the sovereignty of God means that He's in control, God sovereignly rules over all to accomplish His intended ends. I mean, they begin the prayer by saying, Lord, you're God who made heaven and earth and the sea. And in verse 28, they say, to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. You know what will ultimately determine what your prayer life is like and what the prayer life of our church is like? How big do we believe God is? Do we really believe God's in control? Sometimes people say, well, if God's in control of everything and God's working out everything according to His plan, why bother to pray? I would say, if God's not in control of everything, what's the point in praying? Why pray to an impotent, powerless God? So we see here that, that they see that God was in control, which means then that this wasn't happening by accident. You know, sometimes we think if, if, when life's hard that God's uh, abandoned us. But they saw this as part of the purpose and the plan of God. But second, not only is God ruling to accomplish the ends, but we see that God works through His people in time and space as the means to accomplish those ends. See, it's important that we get this. Because, again, if we think God's not in control, there's not much reason to pray. But at the same time, if we think, oh, well, you know, if fatalism, you know, spiritual fatalism, God's just going to do whatever, and it doesn't involve me, then there's not much motivation to pray either. But if we see what the Bible actually teaches, that God is sovereign and we're responsible at the same time, if we see that God is determining the ends, but He's also working through means, and those means are people, those means are us working in time and space, then what more motivating thing for prayer and action is there than that? I mean, look at what they said. They said in verse 27, 28, For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were gathered together. So he just indicted four groups or, or individuals as responsible for crucifying Jesus, but that's human responsibility. But then he says to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done, that's divine sovereignty. You say, I don't understand that, how those two things fit together. I don't understand it either. I just believe the Bible is the Word of God, and so I believe it even if I don't fully comprehend it. But look at what they say in verses 29-30. It says, Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal. In other words, say, God, move, God, do something, but do it 
through us. That's how the church needs to pray. It's not prayer divorced from action. It's both together. It's God, what are you calling me to do? And if God's calling you to do something, it's beyond you. If it's going to be truly, eternally, spiritually fruitful, it has to be in the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's prayer and action, not prayer or action. That's what we need to learn from this. Warren Wiersbe says of this in in his commentary on Acts. Notice this. He says, they did not pray to have their circumstances changed or their enemies put out of office. Rather, they asked God to empower them to make the best use of their circumstances and to accomplish what he had already determined. This was not fatalism, but faith in the Lord of history, who has a perfect plan and is always victorious. They asked for divine enablement, not escape, and God gave them the power they needed. Listen to this. Do not pray for easy lives, wrote Phillips Brooks. Pray to be stronger men and women. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers. Pray for powers equal to your task. That is the way the early Christians prayed, and that is the way God's people should pray today. But third, the conviction we see in their prayer is that God speaks through and fulfills His Word so we can pray and act in faith. Based on the Word of God. Look how they prayed. They did two things here. They prayed Scripture back to God. And they interpreted their experience by Scripture. You see, and this is one of the things we're going to have to decide that's a determining factor in how we live our lives. Is do we interpret Scripture according to our experience and our circumstances, or do we let Scripture interpret our experience and our circumstances for us? You see, if they had uh, uh, interpreted Scripture by their circumstances, they'd have been like, well, where's God? God's abandoned us. Look, we're being so faithful to God, and we're serving Him, but God's uh, letting us get treated in this way. But understand, they interpreted, evaluated what had happened to them according to the word of God. And they determined, uh, you know, as they quoted the second psalm here, uh, you know, where it says, why did the nations rage? And, and notice it says, who by the mouth of your servant David have said. So this is what evangelical Christians believe about Scripture, is we believe it's 100% uh, a divine book and 100% a human book. Uh, when we talk about the inspiration of Scripture, we believe it's ultimately the Word of God. It's God leading them, but wor- uh, working through human authors. So all the words are the words of God, but they appear as though the words of men because men actually wrote them uh, down. And so you see both of these things working together. It says, why do the nations rage? The people plot uh, vain things. The kings of the earth took their stand. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against His Christ. And so they're saying, this is being fulfilled right now. This isn't about us. This is about human beings opposing the Messiah. We're just in the middle of it because we're proclaiming Jesus. But your word and your plan is being fulfilled in what's happening to us. And that will build your faith. Because faith is taking God at his word and acting on it. So Wearsby goes on and says, Their praying was based solidly on the word of God, in this case Psalm 2. The word of God and prayer must always go together. In his word, God speaks to us and tells us what he wants us to do. 
In prayer, we speak to Him and make ourselves available to accomplish His will. True prayer is not telling God what to do, but asking God to do His will in us and through us. It means getting God's will done on earth, not man's will done in heaven. So, those were convictions that guided them as they prayed. And I believe if we'll adopt those biblical convictions, they're going to propel us toward prayer. Third lesson, the content of powerful corporate prayer. You know, look at what they prayed, verse 29 30. Lord, look on their threats. Grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant Jesus. Notice that their prayer was not self-centered. Like, they didn't pray, and, and they had done this before, like, send fire from heaven and devour these people who are being mean to us. They didn't pray, Lord, let us escape, stop this persecution, make our lives easier. And, and I'm not saying it would be even wrong to pray that. There's certainly nothing wrong to pray for our own needs. Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread, which that's what he's instructing us to do, to depend on the Lord and not ourselves for our needs. But when the church comes together to pray, a lot of our prayer should be focused on the mission of Jesus and God using us to accomplish that mission. It was a God-centered prayer. Lord, you are God. That's how they started out. And, you know, through there, they're praying, asking for God to move and for God uh, to, to work. And, uh, you know, it was God-centered. It was for His name, His fame, His glory. It was out of a relationship with Him, a connection uh, to Him. I mean, you know, again, prayer wasn't their last resort. They didn't just pray when they needed to be bailed out. They had, the church was birthed in corporate prayer. John and, and, and Peter were going to the temple to pray. This was how they lived. So is our praying out of a relationship with God, or is it just our laundry list of needs when we get in a jam? A few weeks ago, I was back here in this hallway in between uh, services uh, getting some water. And uh, my dad greets at this door out here, and uh, he likes to give gum uh, to, to, to the kids. And, um, you know, it makes him happy, and it obviously make the ki- makes the kids happy. So I see one of our little kids, uh, he's younger, elementary school age, kind of running down through there, running up to him, and asking for a piece of gum, just being a normal kid. See the mom trailing slightly behind, being a good mom, and she says to him, did you even say hello? And I just wonder if that's not what God's saying to us in our prayer lives a lot of times. Did you even say hello? Because it's not about relationship with him. Again, it's just about gimme, 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 gimme. They started with praising God. So their prayer was God-centered. It was gospel-centered. I mean, notice what they prayed. Grant to your servants with all boldness they may speak your word. But what word were they going to speak? We need to go back to chapter 3 and really look at all through the book of Acts. The word they were speaking, they were speaking, they were preaching the gospel. But then it was others-centered. They weren't praying for their benefit. They were praying for the people around them. They were praying for the advancement of the gospel. They were praying for people to be healed, people to be saved. That was the content of their prayer. So, How do we need to apply that to the content of our prayer? 
individually and corporately. And then four, when you come to verse 31, you see the consequence, the result of their prayer. It says here that they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. That was the result. God filled them with His Spirit. He manifested His presence. He manifested His power. And again, He just didn't deliver them from persecution. They're going to experience a lot more of it. But He empowered them to preach His Word. He empowered them to fulfill the mission that He had given them. It, it, it takes me back to Acts 1.8, you know, it, what Jesus said to them before He ascended back to heaven, when He said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and, and, and Samaria and, and Sorry, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. This is the mission of the church. We have the Holy Spirit, so we're empowered uh, to fulfill this mission. But we quench the Spirit so much. But the way we connect with God's power is through prayer. So, to end, I want to circle back to where we started. And if it's true... There's a spiritual realm, there's an unseen enemy, there's a battle between light and darkness. If we're going to fight that battle effectively, we have to fight it with spiritual weapons. One of our primary weapons is prayer. And I would just simply ask these couple questions. Do you think the problems that we have in the world need natural solutions or supernatural solutions? Problems that you have in your life or needs of people that you're concerned about, that you love, do they need natural solutions or do they need supernatural solutions? What if? What if? We as individual believers, we as True Life Church, and the big C church of Jesus Christ collectively, in faith got on our face before God and cried out to Him for supernatural power. Not just to make our lives comfortable, not just to meet all of our needs, but to change this world. To bring revival and spiritual awakening and to see people saved and to see addicts delivered and to see marriages restored and to see prodigal children come home and to see men rise up and to be the men and the husbands and the fathers that God has called them to be and to see churches planted and to see the gospel spread to the ends of the earth where unreached people groups who have never heard the gospel before, uh, people would be saved. That's the mission of the church until Jesus returns. And if we want him to answer our prayers, we better be praying what's on his heart and not our heart. And that is the heart of God. But it's not just prayer. It's prayer and action, obedient, trusting action, wedded together. Functioning in the power of God. And again, I believe the more we get out of our comfort zone, the more we're going to be propelled to pray. These two things are going to go together. 
When you study church history, revivals, awakenings, great moves of God have been birthed out of often small numbers of people beginning to pray and to seek the face of God. There's a book called Church Planting Movements that's a, a, a research project about church planting movements around the world. And, and one of the absolute non-negotiable characteristics of every church planting movement is concerted, powerful prayer. Who do you know that needs something that only God can do? Salvation. Healing, deliverance, restoration, repentance. If you're a Christian, do you see God? Do you see God answer his prayer in that person's life? As a church, we seek God together. In your small groups, will you make this a priority? And we gather, some of us at noon on Wednesdays, to pray for revival and spiritual awakening. I understand many of you at work, but if you can come, would you come and be a part of that? And let's pray together. We pray for people to be saved. We pray for our church plants. We pray for our mission work overseas. We pray uh, for unreached people groups. I mean, something we've, we've shared these before as a reminder, you know, some of them may probably not one under every seat because probably people took them from the first service, but, you know, there's enough people out with COVID right now that we're not crowded, and so there should be some around you. Just some prayer guides that you could use, some specific things for us to pray together for as a church. Would, would you be willing to, like, set a reminder on your phone for a certain time each day that you could pray for these things, and let's see what God does. I mean, even... Um, you know, in, in preparing this message, studying this text this week, I, I was convicted, just from a leadership standpoint, that not so much personal prayer, but like corporate prayer is something not emphasized enough in the history of true life. But one thing I could say, if you look back over the last few years and the progress we've made, some of the things we've seen God do, you can, you can link it chronologically to we began at a point in time to start practically every week as a staff in prayer together. And you can just see a connection between growth and progress and the timing of that starting. Is prayer first priority or is it a last resort? Do we want what we can do or do we want what God can do? Do you trust that He's sovereign but that He works through the prayers and the actions of His people? Listen, you may have prayed for things that you haven't gotten. Honestly, there's some of you, and I've wrestled with this before, that you're disappointed with God because you don't feel like He's done some things that you thought He should have done or uh, you don't feel like He's fulfilled His promises. Can I just encourage you to trust His Word and not your circumstances and give Him the time to... To, to fulfill his word, time and truth always go hand in hand. God doesn't work on our time frame. He doesn't. I've seen prayers answered through process that takes time. I've seen prayers answered completely out of the blue uh, years after they were prayed, at times after I've given up on praying for them. Trust God. 
you're not a Christian, I encourage you to wrestle with what you believe. Do you believe there is a God? Do you believe that God can be known and accessed? The Bible would claim that the revelation of God, if you want to see God, if you want to know God, is through seeing and knowing Jesus Christ. That He is the way to God because He's God who left heaven and came to earth and lived a perfect and a sinless life and then He died for our sins and rose from the dead. That through repentance and faith in Him, you can have access to God. You can talk to God, worship God, know God in a personal way. Listen, if you believe that, I encourage you to respond to him, to call on his name. That's the first prayer to pray. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. If not, look at his word, talk to people, wrestle with it, make a decision. What's real, what's true? If you are Christians, you're part of the church. I believe God's calling us to pray. I mean, I believe we live in some dark and desperate days in an earthly sense. But I believe that the light is always bright, as bright as the promises of God. God has a plan. He's in control. He's doing good things. We can sit around, complain, whine, moan, and groan. Or we can get with God and we can get in on His plan and let Him use us to make a difference. That's our purpose. He has a purpose for you. He wants to use you. But it's not in the natural, it's in the supernatural. So I want to ask if we would to, to bow our heads and close our eyes. I, I think after looking at this in Scripture, it would be appropriate for us to close in prayer. So I just want to encourage you again, if you're not a Christian, but you have the faith to believe in Jesus Christ, to call on His name and ask Him to forgive you and save you. If you've got questions about that, you're online, you know, connect with one of our hosts. If you're here, talk to me when we're finished. I'll be at the front. One of our pastors, Preston Ford, will be in the lobby. Or there's maybe somebody you know. And if you just have questions, we'd like to talk to you. But if you are a Christian, if you're honest, is prayer your first priority or is it your last resort? Maybe today you need to resolve to make it a priority in your life. Maybe today there's something that you need to trust God and His Word with that maybe doesn't even make any sense to you. But maybe you need to choose. Just put your faith in His Word and not in your own thoughts or feelings or reason or experience. Maybe there's sin you need to repent of. Maybe there's a broken relationship that's hindering your relationship with God that you need to make right. In other words, maybe you need to get in a position spiritually to effectively pray. But once you're there, what is it you need divine intervention for? Who is it that you know that you're just you're broken over? Their life's a mess. We call on the name of the Lord. Who is it you know that needs a relationship with Jesus Christ? We call on the name of the Lord. Whose family's broken? Who has a prodigal child, and maybe it's your own? You need to call on the name of the Lord.
church. Pray. Pray for people to be saved. We pray for revival and spiritual awakening. We pray for me as I preach the gospel, for our leaders, for our ministries, for our church plants, what we're doing overseas, for the spread of the gospel to all nations and tribes and peoples and tongues. And I'm going to close this in prayer in a moment. But one more thing I feel like I need to say. I feel like the Holy Spirit's leading me to say this. But you know, some of you may think, eh, just prayer stuff. I'm talking to Christians. Just prayer stuff. That's kind of hokey. I mean, if you're not a Christian, you think that way. I get it. But can I, can I just warn you that if you're a Christian, you think this way. That God may have to break you in his love to bring you to a point of dependence and surrender to him instead of depending on yourself. And I'd encourage you to humble yourself before it comes to that. And if you know me well, I don't say things like I preach the Bible. I'm not into revelations and all this kind of thing. But I just have this overwhelming sense that someone needs to hear and heed what I just said. Or you're headed for God's discipline in your life. Father, I pray that you would build our faith. And I pray, God, that you would um, call us to surrender, that you would call us to dependence upon you. You call us individually and together, that you'd empower us, Lord, to trust you, to rely on you, Lord, to call on your name. Lord, I, I pray that, um, God, you would fill us with your spirit that you would use us mightily as a church. God, that you would do supernatural things that we wouldn't function in, in the natural. And Lord, I, I just ask that you would, um, God, as you, as you use us, that people would see that it's you, that you would receive the glory for it. God, I pray that the things we've looked at in your word today are things that you would just burn into us as convictions from you that we would not go out from here and, and, and forget this but that we would go from here and to be doers of your word and not hearers only father I, I just pray that you would take this and that you would use it and that we would each respond in the way that we need to and i ask these things in jesus name amen again Thank you for being here. If you need to talk, pray, you got questions, uh, come see me. I'd love to spend some time with you or questions in the lobby.